Hey there, listeners, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local, all-volunteer progressive podcast focusing exclusively on beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I'm Dan, coming at you from our secret studio hideaway, but not for long. We have a special live episode for you today. In case you've missed it, this past August, we held a special event with our good friend Henry Stewart at the Owl's Head Wine Bar. You may remember Henry as our walking tour guide from the Owl's Head Park episode last year. Henry is also a prolific historian and author, who's penned numerous historical analyses of the neighborhood, both for Brooklyner as well as Hay Ridge, which Henry runs and was a big inspiration for this podcast. He came out with True Crime Bay Ridge last year, a smorgasbord of lurid acts that have occurred on our rain-slicked streets and back alleys throughout the past few centuries. But this year, he released the epic How Bay Ridge Became Bay Ridge, a complete accounting of the people and personalities that have shaped and guided our neighborhood from bucolic scrubland to the bustling semi-suburban neighborhood we know today. We had the honor of interviewing Henry live at the Owl's Head Wine Bar, which is pretty much the artistic and creative hub for the neighborhood, and we had a wide-ranging discussion about the book, our local history, and even a preview chapter. Unfortunately, I kind of messed up the lavalier mic recording, those little mics that hang off our collars. I totally forgot to press record even after I set everything up. Sorry, folks. But we did have a backup mic on the table, thank goodness. So it's a bit louder and more noisy than I like for the podcast, but we've been spending the past month cleaning it up as best we could, and heck, it kind of feels more like you're sitting in the owl's head with us, clinking wine glasses and sipping on a beer as we chat to a full house about, well, how Bay Ridge became Bay Ridge. Before we head over and get introduced by John Avaluto, the proprietor of Owl's Head, I just want to let everyone know that you can grab Henry's book at the Bookmark Shop on 3rd Avenue. Shop local, everyone. Or... Amazon, if you really want. Hint, hint, Christmas is right around the corner, and the book is literally an appropriate gift for absolutely everyone who lives in Bay Ridge. I already got a copy for my mom. I hope she's not listening to this, so it remains a surprise. And Henry also launched BayRidgeMuseum.com, which has a shop section that has Henry's other book, True Crime Bay Ridge, that one I got for my brother, or historic postcards. I got a few to remind my Staten Island relatives to keep in touch, but not too often. So grab a glass of wine, sit back, and let's head over to the Owl's Head with Henry. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, thank Radio Free Bay Ridge for coming out and doing this. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you guys for this opportunity. My name is John. I'm the owner and proprietor of this uh, this joint. Um, yeah. <laughs> taking it upon myself tonight to introduce the progenitor of tonight's celebration of Bay Ridge with the release of his latest book, How Bay Ridge Became Bay Ridge, Henry Stewart. surrounding the existing and growing culture of Southern Brooklyn, where we grew up. We have worked oftentimes with Henry to make that, that sense materialize through numerous events in the arts, both literary and visual. This evening is no exception. I opened the Owls Head Wine Bar in 2011 with a commitment to expanding on the existing culture of the neighborhood that I came up in. Extremely nervous about our reception, as we didn't fit the mold for a bar in the neighborhood and subject to harsh criticism by the press of being hipster invaders and gentrifiers, within a neighborhood that I felt so much a part of. Along comes Henry Stewart, 
the then cultural editor of Yale Magazine and Brooklyn Magazine. Henry had been singing the merits of Bay Ridge's history to a borough-wide audience for some time already, through the publications by then, and had taken it upon himself to defend me in the bar with an article called, Can a Native Brooklynite Still Be an Invading Hipster? <laughs> Where Henry illustrates a wider, more inclusive vision of Bay Ridge through analysis of its past, a practice that he obviously has continued to partake in and expand. I'm glad that he has. He has played more than an integral part in the shaping of Bay Ridge over the past 10 years by not only evoking its history, but also loving it enough to not limiting it to its past. Welcoming a future of ideas, hope, and the change that occurs through time. In the, afore uh, the aforementioned article, the comment section was a barrage of harsh words for both Barr and Henry, where a native of the area brings into question the merit of Henry's analysis and his roots in Bay Ridge. Henry's response is where I find the perfect biographical intro for him tonight. It reads, full disclosure, I have spent my whole life in Bay Ridge. My grandmother attended Bay Ridge High School, now telecommunications. My other grandmother went to Fort Hamilton High School the year it opened. My aunts and uncles on both sides went there too, as did my parents, as did I. My parents took their wedding photos in Owlshead Park and had their reception at the Danish Athletic Club. I still have my McKinley gym shirt. <laughs> I bought CDs at Record Factory, rented tapes at Video Den, saw movies at, at Fort Way. I remember Supers Art and the New York Coffee Exchange. The now painted over murals on Food City and Lowen's Pharmacy. As a little kid, I used to walk into Once Upon a Sunday and order the usual because I went there so often. I used to write letters to Christopher Mega, who'd write me back. If I walk into a community board meeting, I shake hands with people I've known for more than 20 years. Every day, I wave hello to neighbors I've been seeing for longer. Enter all caps. My grandfather helped build the Verrazano Bridge. <laughs> My father helped rebuild the Coney Island Boardwalk. Have I passed your fucking identity test? <laughs> I'd say absolutely. So I guess we'll start up. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to follow that, John, <laughs> but I'm going to be following it for about an hour. Um, so if anyone hasn't seen it, this is how Bay Ridge became Bay Ridge. And it is, yeah, there's a bunch of them over there too. And this book is probably the largest and most comprehensive account of Bay Ridge that has ever been published, at least as far as I know. Henry, how did this journey start for you? <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, my first my first exposure to Bay Ridge history was at my grandmother's house on Long Island uh, because she had been in the neighborhood uh, when she was a little kid and her grandfather had come over from Sweden and she had a copy of the Bay Ridge Chronicles, which was uh, this handsome hardcover volume published in 1976 uh, for the, the Bicentennial Celebration of America. And, uh, you know, I was a little kid, so I didn't really read it so much. It's just look through it and look at the photographs, and there would be, you know, photographs of, of 86th Street before it became 86th Street. And, uh, and I was just, you know, dumbfounded by how, you know, how that could be 86th Street, you know. Um, and so when I was a little older, sort of coming of age as a teenager, it was, uh, it was a good moment because that uh, Brian Merlis book came out of the Bay Ridge history photographs. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, 
Heritage Historical Society book of the Samuel Winter Thomas photographs came out. Um, so as somebody who, who you know, spent all my time in Bay Ridge, kind of walking around with my friends, um, you know, seeing how it looked before it looked anything like that was sort of fascinating to me. So I was, I was always really um, intrigued by Bay Ridge history, um, but there were a lot of unanswered questions. And so when I became uh, a lot older, I just started um, seeing how I could use uh, internet databases now to sort of dig into that that history and answer those questions. Um, and then I just got better and better at that um, until, I, <laughs> until I wrote this book. So just hours and hours of digging through, like, what, what kind of sources were you looking for for getting yeah, this kind so of information? I mean, um, this book is primarily sourced out of the, the Brooklyn Eagle archives, um, which are now online and they're searchable, which is um, very convenient, but it's not easy. You know, you can search something like Shore Road and you'll get 25,000 hits of, um, <laughs> you know, phone numbers that used to begin with Shore Road 5, um, you know, all kinds of different things that are sort of useless, but if you spend day after day just going through every single one of them and, and clicking on the ones that you think look like they might help you figure out um, how the park was built over the course of several decades, you can do that. <laughs> so how long does it take to actually like dig through, like how, how many articles are we talking about that are just like ads and stuff that you're digging through in order to get, and this is, there are no, this is not photos, this is all like raw material here, like. Yeah, so I mean, it, I mean, it depends on the subject, but a lot, you know, I mean, there's a chapter in here about the Crescent Athletic Club, and I think I typed Crescent Club into the Brooklyn Eagle archives, literally got, you know, 16,000 articles and went through every single one. Um, I mean, you can skip the ones that you can tell that they're just sort of sports scores because they had athletic teams. So it's like, oh, so-and-so won this match today, so-and-so won the other one. this other sports club, and you're like, well, that's, you know, that's not the story I'm trying to tell about the present athletic club of Rust. How, how did they do overall? Well, very good. I mean, they, they, they were a premier sporting organization in, in Brooklyn, and so they had some of the best athletes in addition to some of the wealthiest. And, uh, and the Crescent Athletics Club, that's on the site of the current Fort Hamilton High School, right? Yes. Um... So Fort Hamilton High School is about probably twice the size of their clubhouse, which only would have occupied like a corner of that of that shore road frontage. Um, but the that whole you know going back to Colonial Road and on either side, I mean that was their athletic field. That yeah. they had tennis courts and the um, cross field and baseball diamonds at some point. Um, and so the when they moved away and closed down, then Fort Hamilton High School, well, the city was able to come in and say, we could build a high school here and then have this huge athletic ground right there for the students. So that's you know, where you have the track now and the playground and everything else. So the reason that road doesn't cut through. Right, is because the, the Crescent Athletic Club was full of wealthy, influential men who could tell the city not to do that. Um, were there other clubs that were less fat? Uh, yeah, there was there was another athletic club at the time. It was called the um, the Ridge Club, and they were formed because there was a, a serious um, there was a group of men at the Crescent Athletic Club who did not like women. They did not like women coming to the club and, and counting how many bottles they you drank. You knew that, <laughs> um, and you know, just spoiling their uh, their stag parties. So. Um, <laughs> So they tried to ban them at some point, and, and did more or less. And so another 
sort of more family-oriented athletic club opened up that, that admitted women and families. Um, and a lot of the very influential citizens of Bay Ridge belong to the Ridge Club rather than the, the Crescent Athletic Club. Yeah, you have you have one section here where a member is satirizing the character of the people that um, ran the Crescent Athletic Club, and um, it's about that there was a downpour and some of the women had like run out onto the veranda. Right, they had gone to like areas they weren't supposed to go to, like the porch. <laughs> the porch was an awful dislocation. So they satirized it, wrote one old member satirizing another. The fact that it was an unexpected downpour, that the piazzas were drenched and the ladies' parlor was overcrowded and the ladies were our guests, is no excuse for a flagrant violation of the rules. It is needless to say that all who could not find shelter in the ladies' parlor should have been promptly removed to the lacrosse field and covered with a tarpaulin until the storm had passed. <laughs> like, this is the kind of stuff that, like, digging through like, must have been an amazing discovery because most of those old photo books, they just show you a photo of the Crescent Athletic Club and, like, the guys posing in, like, their onesies. Yeah. <laughs> and you found, like, detailed histories of the people that ran it and writing a, a nuanced opinion as to how they really ran their club. How did you find the, the Bay Ridge, the, what was it called? The, the other Bay Ridge Club? That, the, like, Ridge Club. the Ridge Club? I think I had first come across that there was a book a couple of years ago by, by a guy named uh, Matthew Scarba, and he had written something sort of about Old Bay Ridge and Ovington Village, and he, um, he had discovered the Ridge Club, uh, and that's where I sort of first heard about it, but then when I was thinking into the Crescent Club, I mean, it's part of that story because it was, it was formed in direct opposition, you know, so you get a lot more kind of detail about what that was about, and um, I guess I'll also reverse back because we're like right in the middle of the 1800s. This book starts with um, kind of two groups that you kind of highlight as the start of the book. You start with the Nyack Indians. So you go way far back, further back than, you know, the Brooklyn Eagle archives could have gone. <laughs> and you also, then the second group that you highlight were the slaves mm -hmm. of Bay Ridge. Um, most people don't understand that this was a heavily slave-owning area. Um, what led you to start with those two groups? Um, well, I mean, I think the Native Americans are an obvious place to start because they were the first people who were here. Um, and so the, the history of, of the area begins with them. Um, it's not a story that I think was often told. Um, so I tried to dig a little deeper, and there's a great... Um, there's a guy from Bay Ridge, Henry Murphy, who originally developed the owl set. Plot of land that became the park. And he spent some time as the ambassador in the Netherlands and he was translating sort of Dutch documents about Kings County. And he, he came across this diary of these missionaries who sort of traveled down here in 1669 and then, you know, kept going. They went all over Long Island. And, um, but there's, there's a good like six pages of the book where I just let them speak and they, you know, they land at uh, around where the Fort Hamilton Army base is now, um, where the, the Nyack had their, uh, where they were, well, they had already been kind of pushed out at that point to Staten Island mm -hmm. um, by the Dutch who had moved there, but they, there was still kind of one long house full of them left, um, and they hung out with them all day and, and wrote about it. So you get a real sense of kind of, you know, what they were like and what their, their lives were like and what their customs were like. And, and the Nyack were, the, that's the name of both the point of Bay, like the, the, the little 
part where Fort Hamilton was. So the Dutch called that, well, the Native Americans called it Nyack. Um, and then we call them Nyack because they lived at Nyack. Um, but the, a lot of the Dutch sort of kept that name. It was common for them uh, into the 18th century to, to refer to that as Nyack. They also called it the Narrows. Yeah. Nyack or the Narrows, that was sort of the so, point of land there. And then the, the you know, uh, corresponding point to the north was called Yellow. So, uh, so from here to Owl's Head, kind of. Yeah. Isn't there like a Nyack on the Hudson, like way up north? Yeah, so that's actually the, the natives who were at Nyack were pushed out to Staten Island, and then Staten Island got more developed and they got pushed out of there, um, eventually sort of joining up with some of the natives in New Jersey, like the Hackensack and the, the uh, Tappan. And they all kind of got pushed then farther and farther north until they finally settled in what we now call Nyack on the Hudson. Yeah, Nyack on the Hudson. Um, but that's not where they originated. That's sort of where they ended after getting pushed out. Um, <laughs> so that's like Bay Ridge expat. Oh, anyway, um, so the, what, original, <laughs> the original expat community for Bay Ridge. What about the, the slaveholding class in Bay Ridge is, is the entire second chapter? Yeah, so I... Um, so the Dutch come and they push the natives out and eventually they bring slaves over. Um, and so you could tell this story by, by talking about the Dutch and then talking about the slaves, but um, I think because that slave population in Bay Ridge had been sort of so ignored and overlooked for so many years that it was important um, just to put them up front and not you know, have them sort of subjugated again to the, to the Dutch. But I think it also gives you um, this important context that when you get to the chapter about the Dutch that you've already read all of this, all of this stuff about them and, and what they did, that you can't ignore that anymore. Was Bay Ridge any more or less slave owning than the rest of, of New York at the time? Um, I think that the rural towns of Kings County, including New Utrecht, which had, which is now what we call Bay Ridge, and Tiger Heights and Bensonhurst and this kind of whole area, um, but the the rural towns of Kings County were, were very, they had a terrible record of slavery. I mean, there, were, there was a higher percentage of slave-owning families in, in New Utrecht than there was in South Carolina uh, at the time. And that kind of, and the fact that it, I, slavery is outlawed in, in Long Island in about like 1824 or 1826, um, but it would have been probably much earlier in the 1780s or something if the sort of Dutch farmers of Kings County had pushed for so long to, to maintain that institution because they were farmers and they made a lot of money, you know, growing vegetables and, it, you know, made a lot of money by not paying for labor to do that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an incredible way to start a book is to take these two disenfranchised communities and everything else is, is kind of a, a story about Bay Ridge of, of the farmers, the obstinate Dutch farmers, and oh, isn't it great, like, ooh, this used to be farmland, they used to grow. Well, when, when the subways were built, right? It was still... Yeah, I mean, there was still, there was still farmland here when they, when they built the subways. It's a kind of, you know, first you build the road and then you build the... <laughs> Isn't there like a quote like, uh, we were one of the first areas out this far to get a subway, and they were like... Yeah, I mean, they had been going, I guess, to, to Flatbush a bit earlier, but um, 
compared to like Gravesend or Flatlands, um, that we got a train coming down here first. And there was there's one like derisive newspaper article where they, you know, talk about the you know subway coming down to the potato patches and cabbage fields, um, which is probably an exaggeration. I mean, there were a lot of people here, but it was still you know. There was a lot of development in Bay Ridge leading up to the 19th century, uh, the end of the 19th century, but it's really the, um, the subway that sort of kicks that into overdrive and forever ends the, the pastoral aspects of the neighborhood. Because at, at that point, you I mean you, you open up the kind of the book with a real, it's, this is right under the title, um, this really great quote. And uh, I think it like kind of defines a lot of the rest of the book, and it's by Hubert Selby Jr. from 1999, and it says, Bay Ridge, I think, is the same for the last 80 years, with a few physical exceptions. <laughs> like, what about that, like, right first page of the book? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the, the book is about kind of the development of the neighborhood on either side of the turn of the 20th century kind of getting up to about 1920. I mean, a little farther, but, um, you know, the neighborhood as it exists right now, at least physically, you know, in terms of the streets and the buildings, I mean, most of them were done uh, by, you know, 1940 at the very latest, but most of it was already done by, by 1920. Um, so I think when, I also just wanted to get Hubert Selby <laughs> up in the front um, as a, you know, barrage marriage boy. Um, but, you know, that's what I think the book is about, is this sort of um, great transformation of this farming community into a, into an urban, suburban uh, neighborhood. I mean, what was one of, I was wondering if you could actually read a passage from the book um, about, like, one of those, like, transition points. Because you mentioned a little earlier um, Ovington Village. And I think people would be like, okay, Ovington, I got Ovington. What's Ovington Village? <laughs> sure. Um, so the, the, first, the first part of the book, uh, there, the book is divided into three parts and then 20 chapters, but the, the different parts are people, uh, parks, and specters. And so specters are sort of uh, developments and, and things like that that no longer exist, but whose effects we still feel. Um, parks are... I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> parks. <laughs> but what I was reading through is like the parks were like you start with like Shore Road, the earliest park, and then you keep moving through like every park in the neighborhood's like detailed history up until like 1980. <laughs> yeah, more or less. Yeah. Um, well, I you know to a large extent I wanted this book to be about um, the the public spaces of Bay Ridge and sort of how they came to be because that's something that we all share. Um, and so that's, that's a, I think, a valuable history to tell because we all understand it. We all know where those places are, um, but probably not you know, why they're there or how they came to be. Um, and then the first part of the book is called People, and it just sort of uh, chronicles the, the different groups of people who came here and changed the neighborhood, uh, starting, starting with the, the Native Americans who were already here. Uh, going all the way up to the, the commuters, which is a story about transportation and, and development. Um, but I did want to read a chapter from the book, and it's called, uh, it's the fourth chapter, it's in People. It's called The Artists and the Elites. Um, and it's about the... Not referring to anyone here. 
I'm sure we have both in the crowd. Um, but yeah, this this is about the the sort of first group of people who came here who were not um, Dutch farmers, even though they may have been part Dutch. Yellow um, hook means yellow corner. It's what the Dutch called the point of land where the 69th Street here is today because of the color of its clay soil. The name came to refer to the surrounding community, but it's not clear when the designation, or its anglicized version, Yellow Hook, was first used. It might go back to the 17th century. We know for sure, though, when the community stopped using it. On the evening of Friday, December 16, 1853, locals met at the district schoolhouse to come up with a new name. It was a two-roomed affair, the Eagle called in 1896, with a hall in between on 3rd Avenue and what's now 73rd Street. The meeting was attended by both new arrivals to the area, such as Henry Murphy, Benjamin Townsend, Joseph Perry, and the descendants of Dutch farming families, such as Jacques Van Brunt, Tunis Bergen, and Wynand Bennett. Several suggestions for a new name were submitted, but the gathering was receptive to none of them. Then James Weir spoke up. Weir was a florist whose nursery was on the east side of Fifth Avenue, between 65th and 66th Streets, where a car dealership is today. He and his wife Anne had emigrated from England and their descendants are still in the flower business with a shop on Montague Street. Pointing out that the community was on a high ridge overlooking the bay, we were offered the name Bay Ridge. <laughs> it was like the winning dark heart, said his daughter, who had attended the meeting with him. Immediately the name was snatched up as the winner. And now many Bay Ridge residents have heard this story about the, uh, the name change and that it was made in response to yellow fever cases of which supposedly began to appear in the 1840s. Yellow anything didn't sound so good, a local historian once told the Times. And Weir's daughter said in her 1932 interview, a group of homeowners who formed a civic group feared the yellow fever epidemic would always be associated with the name of Yellow Hook. However, the Brooklyn Evening Star, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, and the New York Times didn't report any cases of yellow fever or yellow jack or bilious fever in New Utrecht, Yellow Hook, or Fort Hamilton in the 1840s or early 1850s, though the two Brooklyn papers reported often on outbreaks of the virus elsewhere and on other local health concerns, including a mysterious disease in the summer of 1845 that killed 30 horses in Fort Hamilton and Bath Beach. But a terrible outbreak of yellow fever did sweep through Bay Ridge, Fort Hamilton, and beyond, killing dozens of people in 1856, three years later. Reporting at the time didn't mention earlier cases in the area, neither does an excellent 1896 history of the neighborhood, neither does Charlotte Bangs, who devotes a substantial part of her 1912 book to the 1856 epidemic. Weir's daughter, recalling eight decades later an episode from when she was five years old, probably mixed up the timeline and misremembered. There were no cases of yellow fever and yellow hook before it became Bay Ridge. But in the years leading up to the name change, new kinds of people had started moving to yellow hook. What's now 3rd Avenue from, the, from about 60th Street, which was the city line, to what's now 79th Street, was straightened in 1848 and widened. What we call white-collar types arrived thereafter, probably because it made the trip to and through the area easier. Unlike their long-established neighbors, they weren't farmers. Joseph Perry, the controller of Greenwood Cemetery, built a house around 1851 that we now call 7029 Colonial Road though it predated that avenue and was set farther back than the houses there today, closer to what's Ridgecrest Terrace. Perry had been introduced to Yellow Hook by Reverend Dr. John Stone, rector of Christ Church on Clinton Street, who in 1850 built a summer estate and country hotel called the Delwood House, around what's now 72nd Street and Ridge Boulevard. 
Henry Murphy also moved here around that time and built a mansion atop a high hill near Shore Road on a narrow tract of land he said was called Owl's Head. <laughs> Edward Kent built in 1855 a house on what became 68th Street near Ridge that looked like a castle, and his brother Henry built another one for himself near First Avenue, just over the border with Brooklyn at 60th Street. These newcomers, among others, preferred the high ground, settling along the ridge near what's now Ridge Boulevard. Many of the old farmers lived along the shore, but the ridge offered spectacular panoramic views, which have since been obliterated by development. The yellow fever had been in and around New York City since 1668, having followed the slave trade out of Africa to sweep across the Americas. Its symptoms are like those of a particularly nasty flu. Fever, chills, muscle aches, headaches, backaches, fatigue. Those who contract it, usually from infected mosquitoes, will feel better within a week, but a small percentage then enter the toxic phase. The virus can attack their livers, causing jaundice, which is how the disease gets its name in English. It can cause vomiting, rife with bile and dark with blood from internal bleeding, which is how the disease gets its name in Spanish, vomito negro. About half of those who enter the toxic phase will die. Almost 10% of the population of Philadelphia died from yellow fever in 1793, when the city was the young nation's capital. Several epidemics followed in New York City at the turn of the 19th century, killing thousands. During the most severe in 1798, Washington Irving's parents sent their 15-year-old son out of New York for his first trip to the Tarrytown region, which much later became his home and the setting of his legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yellow fever reached the village of Brooklyn as well. In 1803, six people died. In 1809, another 28. In 1823, 10 more. Across the Narrows on Staten Island, there was a serious yellow fever outbreak in 1848, affecting the northeastern shorefront towns of Stapleton and Tompkinsville, south of the present-day ferry terminal, because a quarantine station for boats entering New York was in Tompkinsville. 150 people were infected, 30 died. That September, the Board of Health considered moving the sick to Long Island and the infected quarantine ship to the Lower Bay, that is, closer to Fort Hamilton. So the Board of Health are about to open the box of Pandora upon us, the Eagle reported. It is not sufficient that New York controls our ferries, claims our docks, makes us pay tribute for our very shores, but now she proposes to send her yellow fever patients over here to rusticate and recruit, or to sink down and die. But there's no indication the ship was moved, or that the virus spread to towns across the Narrows that year. It's likely, though, that yellow had a broadly negative connotation in this context. Outbreaks in New Orleans, for example, were well reported in the Brooklyn and New York papers, including one in the summer of 1853 that killed almost 8,000 people. Yellowhook residents might have wanted to avoid the association, even if there hadn't yet been any cases in the locality. But it's, also <clears throat> but it's also possible that people just didn't like the name anymore. <laughs> Newcomers like Murphy and Perry didn't work the land. They had no reason to identify their new community by the color of its soil. They were drawn to the area for its natural beauty, the bay they could see from the ridge on which they'd settled. Yellowhook was Dutch and agricultural, evoking the past. Bay Ridge embodied progress. The Narrows is among the most beautiful spots about New York, local residents wrote in the Times in August 1856, and the ride along the shore today would present a most lovely landscape, bright in cultivation and blossoming with flowers, with no outward sign of the desolation and death which reigns within. The month before yellow fever had hit Fort Hamilton Village. Earlier that summer, Henry Stanton, a retired brigadier general who lived on Shore Road near the garrison, visited his neighbor, George Gelston. Look at that vessel over there, Stanton said pointing toward the Narrows. I've been watching her. She has sickness aboard. We must get her away from these parts. 
Stanley's right. A short period previous to the appearance of the disease at Fort Hamilton, a large number of vessels which had arrived at quarantine from places where the yellow fever existed at the time of their leaving were moved and moored in the bay opposite the fort. The infected ships had been ordered to get farther from the city, around Fort Lafayette, near what's now the Brooklyn Tower of the Verrazano. The first cases were recorded in late July, and the virus spread north into the city of Brooklyn, including Red Hook and what was then called South Brooklyn. It also struck Governor's Island, as well as Staten Island, where 30 people were infected, of which 11 died. By September 1st, 29 people within the city limits of Brooklyn had died, and between 30 and 60 had died in Bay Ridge and Fort Hamilton, including Henry Stanton. The wealthy people in this vicinity have nearly all fled, the Times reported in September, leaving their property in many instances entirely unprotected, and the place appears plague-stricken. Out of a population of from 350 to 500 residing in the vicinity of Fort Hamilton, less than 150 remain. At least 35 families had left, including the Perrys, Murphys, Gelstons, and the Holdens, plus four families of Bergens and four families of Bennetts. The Shore Road area was quarantined. The houses are tenantless, the Star reported in August, and the gardens and farms are in a good degree abandoned. Families who have resided there for 20, 30, and 40 years in uninterrupted health and open their houses every season for their relatives and friends who wish to escape from the heated city have all fled from their homes. No deaths or sickness were there until the yellow fever vessels were quarantined in their vicinity. Paul Ambrose Oliver, a future Brigadier General whose family lived around what's now Oliver Street, was the president of the Fort Hamilton Relief Society, formed to help those suffering from the virus. Walking by the water one day during that harrowing summer, the 25-year-old thought to look in on the fishermen and their families who lived in shacks along the shore. I entered one house where one member of the family was upstairs ill and another below, he wrote, and the sickening spectacle presented itself of the vomit of the persons in the upper room leaking down through the floor upon the bed of the person below. Doctors James Dubois and John L. Crane volunteered to remain with the afflicted ones and do all in their power to prevent the plague from spreading. In September, they both died. They were buried in New Utrecht Cemetery, where there are still monuments to them and their sacrifices. Other victims were likely buried in a quarantine cemetery on Staten Island, possibly the Marine Cemetery and today's Silver Lake Golf Course, which was active from 1849 to 1858. Uh, during that time, 5,000 victims of disease were buried there. In September of 1858, fed up with the quarantine facility that threatened their lives and livelihoods, a mob of Staten Islanders, including leading citizens, burned it down. In September of 1856, new cases of yellow fever began to subside, and the epidemic ended in November when the first frosts arrived. But mercantile elites hadn't been the only ones attracted to the area before the 1856 outbreak, so too were a cohort of artists and artisans. They established a colony in 1850 on the Ovington Farm, roughly between present-day 3rd and 7th Avenues, Bay Ridge, and 72nd Street, incorporating as the Ovington Village Association. It was the Brooklyn version of Greenwich Village, a historian once said. Charles Parsons, a career and eyes lithographer who would become art director at Harper and Brothers, then the largest publishing house in the country, was president. Other members included the miniaturist Anno, <clears throat> Anno Heinig, the engraver Samuel Valentine Hunt, and the lithographer George Schlegel, known for his cigar boxes. The area's fine forested slope was in fact an ideal locality for homes of people of means and artistic tastes, Charlotte Banks writes in her history. The eagle joked in 1894 that the old Dutch farmer's eyes for the beautiful was doubtless better satisfied by the sight of the big turnips and fat cabbages of their plantations than by the natural scenery. <laughs> the Ovington family achieved distinction over the next few decades. Assistant New York City Chamberlain Henry Alexander Ovington, who sold the farm, which he purchased in 1842, 
had three sons, including Edward and Theodore, who owned and operated a notable chinaware company in Brooklyn. Theodore's daughter, Mary White Ovington, became a major civil rights activist, co-founding the NAACP and serving twice as its president. Edward's son, Earl, became the first airmail pilot in the United States. In 1911, he transported a bag of 640 letters and 1,280 postcards 10 miles from Garden City Estates to Mineola in a single-seat plane. <laughs> Garden City named the street after him. Ovington Village's main street also bore their name, Ovington Avenue, whose western terminus when it was laid out in 1852 was 3rd Avenue where it met Cedar Lane, which continued crookedly to 2nd Avenue and the Athenaeum, a sort of town hall built around 1872. It was a long three-story building bordered by empty fields, surrounded by a white picket fence with an imposing mansard roof and elegant church windows on its tall second floor. The Athenaeum was a lively place with its post office and its well-known postmistress, its auditorium for graduating exercises and its rooms for the Bay Ridge Reading Club. From a window of the Athenaeum floated the red flag that was raised when the only doctor, the good Dr. Frederick de Mund of New Utrecht, paid his visit to the Bay Ridge section. Then the little children could acknowledge their sore throats because the excellent family doctor was ready to attend them. <laughs> to the east, Ovington Avenue reached Stewart Avenue, between today's 6th and 7th Avenue, and by 1869 it had been extended all the way to what's now New Utrecht Avenue. And the streets survived, so no longer it's a major thoroughfare. But none of the original dwellings, as far as I can tell, still exist. In 1850, each member had a lot 400 feet wide on which they built lovely homes, each with a garden. Houses on Ovington Avenue today are on lots about one-tenth that size. Restrictions were placed on the types of buildings to be erected within the territory, the founders desiring to keep it a good residence section. One of the first structures to violate those restrictions was a car garage that opened between 4th and 5th Avenues in 1917 which is still there, number 443. Many people mistake it for old horse stables. With much hesitation, I have reached the conclusion that the erection and the proposed use of the garage does not violate the restrictive covenant, a judge wrote after a neighbor had sued. <laughs> it is and will be necessarily displeasing to the resident property owners on the block, but this is not the test. A good neighborhood is not necessarily an exclusively residential neighborhood. <laughs> Many of the largest apartment buildings now on Ovington Avenue between 3rd and 7th Avenues followed, built in the late 1920s, though a few weren't built until the 40s or 50s. The architectural decimation continued for decades. Half of a magnificent three-story Victorian house with two rounded corner towers was demolished in 1952 for the apartment building at number 359, and the other half was replaced in 1985 by the hideous low-rise medical offices at number 355. <laughs> The modest Lutheran church next door was raised in 2012 and replaced by number 345, the ugliest building in the neighborhood. <laughs> Five stories of stainless steel and sickly brick that are all function and no art. <laughs> the elite's homes didn't survive either. Edward Kent's castle was torn down in 1902. The land later redeveloped as Madeline Court. Perry's house was torn down around 1915, and part of his old estate was cut through with side streets, Perry and Ridgecrest Terraces. And the apartment building at 6902 Ridge Boulevard, which would have once been on the Edgeworth property, is called Perry Arms. The Athenaeum was replaced around 1899 by several stone row houses on the east side of Ridge Boulevard, including one, number 6939, that was the childhood home of former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen. Ovington Village stopped appearing in the Eagles real estate listings between World War I and the Great Depression, though the name was uh, revised in the 1970s revived by a group that hosted home and garden tours. 
It had been the area's first major residential development, the first time an old farm was sliced up into lots for individual homes. This was the first appearance in Bay Ridge of what was then called an outside element, as prior to this time there were few people in the locality whose business interests were elsewhere. The settlement marks the start of the transition from pastoral Yellowhawk to suburban Bay Ridge. It's where the past ended and the present began.
So there were ways to get in and out of Bay Ridge. There were ferries. There were there were elevated <coughs> surface. There were surface level trains. There were um, all kinds of ways to get in and out, but they weren't particularly fast, and they weren't particularly reliable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a blizzard in 1888 that sort of shut down all of the surface rail in the city, and that's when um, city government was first started considering the idea of putting the trains underground so that um, snowstorms would no longer just suspend yeah. the movement of the entire city. Um, and that then eventually spreads all the way down to Bay Ridge by 1916. We have a lot of transit options back then, which almost seems weird to think about now. Yeah. Um, why would anyone, and, and you said it was like potato patches, why did people want to come down all the way to like the Fort Hamilton area from the rest of the city? Well, Fort Hamilton starts out as a sort of vacation destination, so people come down there like for the weekends to um, stay in hotels and drink beer and, and play carnival games and uh, ride carousels and eat popcorn and, and get into trouble. Uh, <laughs> people don't really start moving here until later, but it's with you know the promise of better transportation. So actually, one of the first like developments around here is not in what we consider Bay Ridge today, but what became Dyker Heights, which starts in like the 1880s or early 1890s, and it's called Bay Ridge Park, and it's actually built by a streetcar company. They the streetcar company buys the land, starts developing it, and then builds a streetcar through it so that the people will buy houses there and then can get where they're going by taking their streetcars. Um, though it didn't always work out. You know, it was like today's buses. You, know, you might be running to catch one on the corner and it just goes away. <laughs> it might never come. There's a, there's a funny story about a guy who hangs a sign on his house who's like, move to Philadelphia. <laughs> it's cheaper and there's better transportation. <laughs> I feel like you could hang that sign today, too. <laughs> you mentioned the, the malaria and, and the pond drainage. Like, what were they draining? I mean, I can't imagine, like, it was mostly from about, like, what's now Fort Hamilton to uh, Bath Beach. Okay. And I think they were just sort of, you know, there were pools of water. They were just all, you know, we kind of think of ourselves as separated from the water. You know, there's a coastline and there's the water and the rest is dry land. But I think um, in the 19th century, there was, you know, there, were, there would be all sorts of creeks and ponds and waterways um, that were just developers destroyed so that they could What's the where the the big that's north of Fort Hamilton, so that's the Gulf well, this was, course, right? Yeah, I mean the Gulf the Gulf course was a was a salt marsh, um, which was probably what made the yellow fever epidemic so bad because salt marshes are very conducive to mosquito breeding. Um, but yeah, now it's <laughs> like there are, there are parts of the book where you're talking about how as as Bay Ridge is developing. Gulf was like another landscape in Bay Ridge entirely. It wasn't just relegated to Diker. Yeah, there was there was a lot of golf. Well, the, the Crescent Club played a lot of golf. And because, especially west of Third mm-hmm. Avenue, uh, was so undeveloped until really the early 20th century, um, that the, the Crescent Club would rent the, the land from the farmers who owned it, and they would play golf all around. What's now for them? So stretching from about 77th Street and Ridge Boulevard to 87th Street and Shore Road was just a giant 18-hole. <laughs> uh, 
and they would play between houses? Well, there were only, you know, there were only probably, you know, 15 or 20 buildings in that entire area. It was really undeveloped. Yeah. Um, so there, there wasn't a lot to say around. It was just, it was just kind of open, open land. And that was like where, like the gingerbread house, like clusters around that area too? Yeah, well, the gingerbread house is right you know, across the street from what was the Crescent Club. So it was, it was actually built by a, a member of the Crescent Club, and a contractor that he used was a member of the Crescent Club, and a, kind of everybody involved was a, was a Crescent Club. <laughs> a crescent man. And I there, there was like a section of the book where you're talking about, so speaking about the transit, like how some of the crescent members didn't want to use the trolleys if other people were taking the trolley down. There were, there were a lot of audience uh, of transportation that were, you know, couldn't, couldn't abide. A crescent man could not abide. So, yeah. Were they willing to pay like an extra 25 cents or something for the trolley? I think it was an extra nickel, but they thought they could put like a special car on for the back for rich people. They would pay <laughs> extra money to take the same trip, but they wouldn't have to sit with the poor people. <laughs> and another one that's really interesting is just like how you mentioned, I, I forgot to come back to this, there were carnival games in the bridge. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, the area around Fort Hamilton's sort of grows up as a, as a village of, of immigrants who are servicing uh, soldiers on the army base because at the time the, the government doesn't do your laundry for you or cook your meals for you necessarily. So all of these Irish immigrants, when, they, when the army base is opened, move in all around it so that they can do those sorts of jobs. Um, and then you know, people, sort of retired military people and officers kind of move around there as well to like different different sections of the village. Um, but they, they start building it up, and one of them, uh, George Gelston, after who, whom Gelston Avenue was named, uh, opens a hotel on Shore Road, and, and people start to visit. And so you get this kind of like officer class and their ladies. Um, Strolling the verandas and having drinks, but then from there it sort of it sort of snowballs and it, you know the it becomes a fishing area first commit commercial fishing and then sort of recreational fishing. So people are coming down to catch shad in the in the narrows with nets, which you know sometimes comes so much like the the sea rises <laughs> um, just full of full of shad runs. Um, and then other hotels open up and other people start coming and it starts to get a little bit more middle class or working class um, and you get, it's, it becomes sort of like a Coney Island almost, like it's just sort of um, vacation resort town where, as I said, you know, there was lots of alcohol, um, there, were, there were lots of hotels, there were, there were drunken soldiers fighting on the streets, you know, there were you know, young ladies using the, the latest um, vulgar words. <laughs> Was, you kind of you read these different descriptions of Fort Hamilton Village, and sometimes it sounds fun, and sometimes it sounds really dangerous. Like it, it depends on the on the writer who's writing it. You know, some people would come down here and have a great time, sort of partying with the working class, and other people would come down here and be really scared to be around the working class, and they would write about how this was a really violent, you know, terrible place that no one should ever come. And that's it. Just keeps on back and forth like that. It's not really a tradition. <laughs> What happened to that 
that area. Like, there's huge hotels, like, all surrounding Fort Hamilton Army Base. What? Yeah, so there was, I mean, one of the major hotels in the late 19th century burned down. I think that dealt the neighborhood a big blow. I think also people were just starting, the population was starting to move down this way. Um, so there were, there were fewer hotels opening and more just sort of apartment buildings and housing. Um, but you see, you know, parts of that kind of survived pretty late. You know, there was like a Shore Road casino um, on like 3rd Avenue and 100th Street or something like that. More like a, more like a dinner club than a, than a gambling den. Um, but I think like the, the building is still there, like next to the coffee shop, there's that like weird nightclub that never really stays open. Yeah. So that's sort of like, yeah. that kind of goes all the way back to, you know, it's this sort of lineage of the... Of Saturday Night Fever, like. Right. Um, but it just sort of, yeah, you get, and also, you know, you have the rise of Coney Island around the turn of the 20th century and yeah. like Dreamland and Luna Park and... People chase all kind of start to open at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. And the transportation, I think, after Coney Island starts to improve around then. And so it becomes easier for people to go, for everybody just to flock to Coney Island rather than to go to, because they were all sort of resort towns, you know, Fort Hamilton, uh, Bath Beach, Manhattan Beach, Coney Island, Sheepshead yeah. Bay, you know, everywhere was like this little sort of beachside party town um, that all kind of get eclipsed by Coney Island. <laughs> And our beaches ended up turning into totally, I mean, we filled that in, basically. Yeah, I mean, they, they start to get polluted even by like, I forget if it's like the 1910s or the 1920s that you can find articles in the Eagle about how, you know, it's not safe to swim anymore. <laughs> um, that's not, you know, that's not a particularly modern thing. That was a, it got dirty really quick. Um, but yeah, I think when they built the Bell Parkway in like the late 30s or um, all of those beaches are kind of destroyed. Yeah. But nobody's using them anymore because, well, the whole point of the Bell Parkway is so that you can get to other cleaner. You beaches. don't have to stop here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and But people did stop in Shore Road. I mean, Fort Hamilton expanded, right? There was, the, the, I, I was reading, there was one section where you're talking about during the war. Was it the world, was it World War One Or World that like all of Shore Road gets like occupied by the military. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's World War One. Um, I think something like you know, 1919, the Navy comes to Shore Road and says we're going to take all of the sort of half park that you've built here, <laughs> and we're going to turn it into a naval base. And they build about a hundred buildings. From 69th Street to 86th Street, including you know barber shops, medical facilities, quarantine facilities, um, barracks upon barracks, and the because the, there's a receiving ship on Shore Road, which is how like soldiers come in and out of the war. You know they have to sort of be processed through what's called receiving ship. So yeah. they the receiving ship on Shore Road. They build this entire barracks town, and then the war ends. Um, <laughs> Like, what, like a couple of months after? <laughs> yeah, more than yeah. uh, And so the, you know, the residents of the town are like, look, you know, we're trying to support the war effort, you know, but we, we didn't complain about you coming and building this small town. You know, but <laughs> the war is over and we would like our part back. You know, we paid a lot of money. We're, we're very rich people. We live on Shore Road. <laughs> like, one of them is the congressman from the air, you know. Um, mm. 
and the Navy just sort of drags its feet, and it's like, well, you know, we have a lot of people to process coming back from the war, you know, it's going to take us some time, and so Beirut is like, okay. And it just drags on, and eventually they're like, look, like, you've got to leave, and the Navy's like, well, maybe we're not going to Like, maybe we're going to build a permanent naval base right on Shore Road, you know? So it becomes this big fight for, for like, a few years. Um, and finally, um, the, the citizens of Bay Ridge of Victoria and the Navy agrees to leave um, if, if the Parks Department will, will knock down all their buildings and clear the mess of it, um, which they say they will do, and then they won't do it. So this, this lasts... <laughs> This lasts for like, you know, five, like less than 10 years, but for several years, you know, um, Shore Road is kind of a mess. And I think in addition to a lot of other things that were happening, this sort of ends the era of Shore Road as this place where you know, millionaires built their mansions because a lot of them end up leaving because, you know, they can move to Long Island now, there's more land out there, there's better transportation, cars are becoming a thing. Um, and then also they have this big, hideous, you know, they will be across <laughs> they don't want to live across from. Um, and so a lot of the rich people move away, and then the new people coming to Bay Ridge are, you know, commuters. They're not, they're not necessarily rich people who can afford to buy uh, a house on the water. You know, then the Depression hits, um, and that's, that's why they end up tearing down almost, you know, most of the houses on Shore Road and putting up because they were abandoned and Nobody wanted to buy them or could afford to buy them. And that's just like one tiny section. Like we focused for a lot of this talk on just the first one third of your book. This is like a little bit of the park section. Right. <laughs> like, how big was your original manuscript for this book? I need to ask. Uh, well, it went through a lot of different iterations. Um, I did keep a file of all the stuff I was cutting, which was. Um, it was, it was something like 20 or 30,000 words. Just the stuff that I cut out. Um, and the book is like 100,000 words. Um, so I, it was even longer before. Any, anything you wish you kept? <laughs> um, there was one page that I was really sorry to cut. Um, it just didn't fit into the sort of flow of the story. And so I decided I had to let it go. But it was about um, agriculture and barrage and like what the Dutch were growing. Um, and how they had sort of transitioned from, from growing grains to growing vegetables. Um, and, but it was all kind of set up just to get to this punchline about how much manure they use. <laughs> because the soil here is not actually... The soil here, you could grow a lot of grains here, but you couldn't grow vegetables very easily here, so it required a lot of, a lot of manure. Um, <laughs> And, but they were, they were transporting basically all of the sort of livestock waste from Manhattan, um, from Brooklyn, um, possibly even human waste, um, and like carrying it by the boatloads down to Bay Ridge, and then you know, shoveling it off the of ships into carts, and then driving it back to their farms. So those were our peers. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were manure delivery systems. <laughs> so you go hang out on the 69th Street Pier today, and <laughs> just remember its history. Yeah, that's all, that's all. Just take it in. Um, I guess I'm, I'm, we're going to try to get to Q&A, so I have only a couple of questions left. One of them is, what's next for Henry Stewart? What's your, what's your next project? 
I want to hear even more. I've already gone through this, yeah. and I'm waiting for another one. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've got a lot of things in the works. I, I just started a thing called the Bay Ridge Museum, which is uh, a virtual space for now, um, at least for now. That's uh, sort of tying together a lot of this work that I was doing for, for Hay Ridge and for uh, Brooklyner. And so you can, you know, the sort of there's, there's a history blog there that's doing you know new research stuff that's not in the book um, there's there's you can buy books there you can buy postcards there um, you can you can support donations um, and soon and soon I'm trying to I'm gonna I'm really gonna do this I'm really gonna take my uh, walking walking tour licensing exam and hopefully get licensed and then start doing um, sort of this this sort of thing but in the in the streets. <laughs> Take it to the streets. Uh, but for right for right now that you know I'm trying to keep an active social media presence, so if you're on Facebook or Instagram <laughs> or even Twitter, um, <laughs> you can look up the Bay Ridge Museum and, and follow us for um, there's lots of old photos and sort of more, you know, deeper dives into the context around them and then as well as uh, new new blog posts and articles and so, I mean, I'm sure everyone here is going to read this. I hope everyone here reads this, and we, have, we will obviously have copies. If anyone's listening after the fact, because this is, we, we are full, and there are people, like, outside that aren't even able to listen in that are still hanging, like, waiting out there. Yeah. Like, if people are listening at home, Bookmark Shop has that. Um, they do. One last question, which is, what single lesson, and only one, would you hope that after people read this, they take away from about 300 years of Bay Ridge history as you've written it? Well, that you should financially support local historians. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you read between the lines. That's definitely, I think that's the end chapter, is it just an entire thing on that? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, uh, the the past, the past is present, right? So I mean, all those sorts of things that we that we fight for, whether it's public spaces or public transportation or whatever else, um, you know, this I think that this offers you a sort of uh, a look back at what what people were already doing um, to to achieve those things and their sort of successes and their failures. Um, so that, you know, when we're doing that in the present day, for whatever it is, you know, uh, we, can, we can learn from those examples and, and hopefully not make the same mistake. Nice. Nothing in Bay Ridge happens without some people asking for it. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much, Henry. I guess we'll open this up to Q&A, but Henry, thank you so much. Second floor. Are you talking about like like row houses? Yeah, like all along. I see a lot of houses along. Sure. Road and all over well, the area. Oh, there's 
There are a lot of houses, I think, that are just actually built on natural hills um, that may have been sort of reduced or, or changed by, um, by developers or by the city when they were building streets, but um, some of that natural topography was retained. Um, and so there's actually, I mean, there are examples in the book of, of specific hills that you can still sort of see, like on the, if you stand on like 79th Street and Narrows and look towards 80th Street, you know, the house on the next corner is about 12 feet higher than you're standing, you know, because that was a, that was a hill that was there. Um, they, real estate developers called it Crescent Hill. Um, well, like if you're walking up towards, uh, if you're on like 84th Street and Ridge Boulevard walking towards 3rd, like that was another natural hill and you can still sort of sense the, um, the, the steep grade in the street there. Um, I mean, it's a hilly area, you know, just like, um, the Hudson Valley counts, you know, which are a little worse, but, um, I mean, we had a, we have a ridge, you know, that's why we're called Bay Ridge. And so a lot of those houses are built on those natural hills. And so they have long staircases to head up. <laughs> Anyone else? I'm gonna ask another. Oh, whoa! We have. Oh, sorry. I have like light in my eyes. Go for it. Uh, this is great. There's a brief mention of Bay Ridge in another historian's book, uh, Craig Stephen Wilder's *Element of Color*. Yeah. And he listed as the only neighborhood that got an A rating during the period of redlining. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you know about that history and how you think it impacted the development of Bay Ridge. Um, yeah, so I've seen, I've seen the redlining map, and I think it's the only place, there, there might be another, one other place in Brooklyn, but um, Shore Road, basically, kind of what we think of today as prime Shore Road from, you know, 75th Street to uh, 90th Street, give or take, um, on the redlining maps is, yes, gets like an A grade, um, and that's because, I mean, it's because it's so isolated. I mean, it's, you know, what affected, I think, those redlining maps was you got lower grades, the more, you know, people of color that you had living there or the closer you were to people of color. Um, and so that Shore Road section, because it was so wealthy and had been that way for so long and the sort of areas around it were so wealthy that you had um, fewer of those um, people of, of striving class sort of moving closer to you. And I, you, I mean, you see the, the effects of that still today. If you look at like the maps of how Bay Ridge voted in 2016, you know, the old, the old redlining, you know, A plus district is, is, you know, bright red and went for Donald Trump and a lot of the sections around it are blue and went for Hillary Clinton. Um, yeah, we have that on Radio Free Bay Ridge. We have those maps that just show that like great red spot right there. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I mean that, not perfectly, but, but closely coincides with the, those old maps. We haven't, yeah, we haven't moved past that part of Bay Ridge's history, I don't think. <laughs> um, anyone else? Yes. Saw another, oh, Hi. Annalise, yes. Uh, thank you, Jenny. thank you. And uh, so I'm gonna buy your book, but I don't know yet where okay. it ends, <laughs> obviously. So I'm gonna ask you, um, uh, 
the way that Beirut is continually becoming Beirut, and now the area here called Little Palestine, is there any sort of information you have on the, the origins of that? Um, yeah, so I don't cover that at all in the book. I've looked into it a little bit on, on my own. Um, I don't I don't have a great sense of it, but the, the impression that I got was that there was a, a part of Lower Manhattan that was known as Little Syria, and that was where a lot of Arab-American immigrants came to live in New York City um, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And they demolished that neighborhood when they built the Battery Tunnel. And so a lot of the people who were living there moved. A lot of them came to Atlantic Avenue, sort of right on the other side of the bridge. Um, but then also some of them started moving down to Bay Ridge. And I'm not exactly sure why. Um, but I think it was mostly um, people who had been successful um, and had some money who were trying you know, to move out to maybe a quieter neighborhood or a safer neighborhood. And so the earliest um, Arab Americans in Bay Ridge kind of come along in the 40s, 50s. They're mostly Syrians and Lebanese, and they're mostly Christian. Um, and they, they start to establish a community here, and then I don't really know how the rest of that narrative happens, but I would imagine just by being here that other people start to come and join them and then it just sort of, uh, you know, snowballs and we have a whole community here now. Um, but why they first came here from Atlantic Avenue, um, I, don't, I don't really know. And one of the things is, you know, very early on, um, they, the, the, I think the Brooklyn Library just digitized the entire run of the caravan, which was that Syrian community's sole local newspaper that started in Atlantic. And I, I had gone through back when it was microfiche, and you can see um, Syrian stores and things like that as far back as the 1940s on 86th Street. Um, not a new, yeah. like, area. I remember coming across in the Brooklyn Eagle a mention of like the Syrian Lebanese Civic Association or something like that and it was like the early 1950s and they had you know dozens if not hundreds of members. You know, there was there was a big community already here that far back. But what happened to Norwegian and Scandinavian community? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean Norwegian and Scandinavian. Um, sure, so I mean my, my family was uh, Norwegian and Scandinavian, and my mother had uh, two siblings, and my father had three siblings, and all of them left, except for my parents. You know, so we were the last part of that family that stayed here in Brooklyn, um, including uh, you know half of my grandparents. And I think a lot of that was just the sort of um, the movement of people of New York in the sixties and seventies that you had a lot of. Especially white people leaving the city to move to the suburbs, um, and that you know, that's just a lot of the Scandinavians here decided to to leave, like a, like a lot of other people did. Yeah. Well, even in the early '90s, there were restaurants, there were stores here, and the last one closed I think a few years ago. Yeah, just recently. Um, but I think, well, yeah, I mean, that's also just. You know, I mean, even if you look at the friends that I had in elementary school, I mean, most of them are gone, you know, so even if you still had some Norwegians here, we weren't really attracting new Norwegians, and we weren't really retaining the Norwegians <laughs> we had. Um, so I think by just the sort of natural attrition of, of 
demographics yeah. in the city, you know, that just kind of started to disappear. And there's a whole section in the book on Leif Erikson Park and how it gets cut in half by the Verrazzano. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely, there's a little bit about the Norwegians in here just because they were around Leif Erikson and sort of fighting to name a park for him and then getting a statue or a plaque and uh, they were they were an organized community in the, in the uh, mid 20th century for, for celebrating their achievements. Um, Isn't there like a rune stone or something? Yeah, there's, there's a rune stone in, in Leif Erikson Park um, that, that discusses Leif Erikson where is that? I really uh, well, it's on it's on Fourth Avenue where the sixty sixth and sixty seventh Street oh. sort of branch off. Like that. <laughs> it's this very hard part of the park to get to because you can't really walk there from Fourth Avenue without crossing roads, and you wouldn't really walk there from the other way because it's a dead end. Um, but there is there is a big endemic of how the neighborhoods changed and grown around other groups. Yeah, but if you're if you're driving a car. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah, go for it. Uh, you talked a little bit about when the subway came. Um, uh -huh. Were people like, what, how, what was like the split of public opinion on bringing the subway to Bay Ridge? Was it thought of as inevitable? Was it like the elites of Bay Ridge were also the developer, the real estate speculators who stood to profit from it? Or were there people in Bay Ridge who really were? Uh, upset about the prospect of public transit. Yeah, uh, there wasn't an organized opposition. So if those voices exist, they're not really well reported by history. You, what we're mostly left with is the voices of the organizers, most of whom sort of stood to gain, if not financially, then just by you know being power brokers in a in a, in a growing community. Um, but I don't I don't get the sense that there were a lot of people here, or, you know, you, you do get a sense of, like, uh, some of the old, you know, Dutch farmer descendants who may have still been around, or some of the, uh, you know, the elites who came after it, but there was that long break uh, before more of them showed up, and, and you do get this, like, sort of rueful sense of how trees are being cut down and houses are being put up, um, but there's not, there's not a real, like, we have to stop this, you know, we have to end it. It's like, oh, this is so sad, but this is how life is, and, you know, and we all have a lot of money to make, so let's... <laughs> <laughs> Those properties boosted up nice for the trains. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they're, they're very nostalgic, but they're not, you know, they're not wielding that as, like, a political tool. They're also very accepting of, of the sense of progress and there did seem to be some, like, argument over what to do with the landfill from the subway, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that gets into weird Byzantine <laughs> political fights about, you know, does the port of New York, you know, can they access the landfill that's owned by some other agency? <laughs> Fighting over the dirt from the subway was one yeah, of the which, biggest fights. <laughs> which, which part can have which dirt? <laughs> More stuff in the park section that we did not even touch. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's, most of the book is about parks. <laughs> Anyone else? So, yeah. um, as a homeowner on the street, I was wondering, when people lived in the townhouse, do they have servants? What, what the, were they middle class? Yeah, they, they were built, I guess, in 1910. Right, yeah. Um, 
seen advertisements for when I was in say on like 75th Street that that advertised like that they have like a servant's toilet or you know you could tell like maybe they had somebody there to help them. Um, but I don't have a great sense of sort of what you know the, the social makeup of an individual building would be like. Um, yeah, I mean I could guess, but I don't really know. Anyone else have anything? Seeing over there. Uh, so, uh, as was previously mentioned, the, uh, the question about the opposition to the building of the, the subway. What about the, the construction of the Bell Parkway and the, the various forward moves initiatives, like the various the bridge and uh, Queens Expressway? Yeah, of, I mean, uh, based on what I've read, it's it's more the same. You know, it's a kind of you know you, you get the sense of people saying like Shore Road used to be better. I liked Shore Road before it looked like this, um, but there's. But people also seem to think like this is what is necessary to happen in the city, you know, that like, well, we need a highway for cars, you know, so it's, it's, I'm really sad that this is happening, but I'm not like motivated to go out and like, you know. Yeah, was it wasn't a for opposition. Yeah, not, not that I got the sense of, um, I mean, not like it was in say Brooklyn Heights, but also they weren't, you know, um, the Bell Parkway here was also not really tearing through an existing community. They were building it on landfill on the edge of the community. So while they may have been uh, ruining, you know, the scenery, they weren't actually like kicking anybody out of their homes. Not like they would be, uh, you know, 20 years later when they built the, the approach to the horizontal bridge, which there was a lot of opposition. Yeah. Um, but that's because people were actually being displaced by that. Sure. And that also, and that land was already there. We already mentioned like the army was already occupying a good chunk of it. And it was supposed to be a major park, right? like, much different than the park we have now. Like, what were some of the original plans for Shore Road? Uh, for Shore Road Park? Yeah. Uh, well, sure. I mean, the earliest, the earliest plan we have for Shore Road Park was actually from Frederick Law Olmsted, who did um, Prospect Park. And he had this idea for a sort of pleasant, pleasant winding drive with, with trees along either side of it. And at one point where the shore was a little wider, it would go down and you would have this sort of double drive system. And that's, that's the sort of roots of the idea of having, you know, our modern day shore road and then the Bell Parkway underneath it. Um, and so they start to try to, I think he draws those up at like 1899. And then um, the city tries to follow them, but just keep, kind of keeps falling off and running out of money. And, and eventually what happens is very different. Um, it happens for so long. Robert Moses gets involved. <laughs> so, so there was a parks plan for like 50 years, and like eventually Robert Moses like grabs a hold of it and turns it into what he wants. Yeah, but that, I mean that happened with a lot of the parks in Bay Ridge. Um, Leaf Erickson Park was uh, like from Fourth Avenue to Fort Hamilton Parkway was just a dusty road that um, Robert Moses came in and said, "I'm going to build a whole series of playgrounds here." Um, Owlshead Park was, you know had a bunch of crumbling buildings that nobody was repairing and Robert Moses came in and knocked them all down and built trails and bathrooms and benches mm -hmm. and said, now you know what I'm going And he did the same thing to, to Shore Road. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to landfill this even more than you already imagined. I'm going to build a highway here, but then I'm going to build baseball fields and walking trails and playgrounds. And it was active, active use kind of thing. Yes. What about uh, McKinley? McKinley is a... Uh, it's, it's a little bit more Sylvan in a yeah, way. Yeah, so, um, yeah, McKinley Park was just, 
the Cisco Woods um, that already existed that were there that people were using for like picnicking and uh, they, you know, somebody comes along in the early 20th century and says we should buy this and we should turn it into a proper city park um, and so they do and so it's obviously not woodlands anymore and it's changed a lot over the years and um, you know there used to be like a skating pond in McKinley Park, there used to be um, all kinds of different amenities and it's changed a lot over the years and that's just sort of to the taste. I mean it just changed drastically a year or two ago, you know, they built that new there used to be a you know classic sort of 1980s concrete baseball field, and now yeah. it's a nice turf um, field up there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Any more questions? Going once, going twice before a round of applause for Henry. Hey there, listeners. Hope you liked our talk, and thanks again so much to Henry Stewart for his amazing book and John Avaludo for his continued efforts to make the Elshead Wine Bar a supportive and nurturing place for authors, artists, and disenfranchised groups across the neighborhood. They just finished up a new renovation recently, so swing by and grab a glass. And as you do so, remember to stay free, Bay Ridge. Mm-hmm.